Well, as the children are being dismissed, you can turn again to the Gospel of John. We pick up uh, where we left off at the beginning of John 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, God has given us his word so that we can know him, so that we can trust in him, so that we can believe in him, so that we can see the good news of Jesus not only as something we have passed down to us, but something that is living and active, real and dependable. So let's pray that we would receive his word. Father, we ask that you would open your word to us, that you would illuminate our hearts and minds, that we would understand what is here. And we pray that you would show us the depth of your love, the power and effect of it, and that it would not be without effect on each of our lives, but instead we would know that Jesus has done everything that we need and that we would trust in him, that we would turn from sin and believe. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Well, one of the perks of being a minister is that I get to do a lot of weddings. And... Uh, you know, because you go through phases in life. Isn't that weird how it happens? Like, at when you're young, in your 20s, you go to a lot of weddings. And then you kind of don't go to that many. And then, like, your kids and other people's kids, you know, start getting married and you end up going to more weddings. Uh, but it is a privilege of mine that I get to go to them. And weddings are always weird. Uh, you know, they never go off completely as planned. Uh, I, have, I have yet to do a wedding that went off exactly the way everything was scripted, right? We put a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of money into weddings, right? No wonder they're a little bit stressful sometimes. But weddings are great <laughs> because they're the culmination of a lot of things. Uh, for the couple, it's the culmination of the search for somebody. Uh, for the parents and the family, it's it's kind of a defining moment in the child really 
leaving the house in a lot of ways. Uh, it is a clear break in terms of that relationship. I mean, not a cutting off, but, you know, it's, it is a definitive shift. And it's, you know, ideally a kind of once-in-a-lifetime party as well that you're throwing. Uh, it's great. And it, it is interesting that the Bible speaks over and over and over again about God's relationship with his people as being like a marriage. And that's not just that that comes up sometimes. It comes up at the very beginning of the Bible when God makes humanity in his image. And what is the first thing that he does? He gives Adam and Eve to each other in marriage. It's at the very end of the Bible. The end of all things is the wedding supper of the Lamb. Christ and his church. And so it isn't just one metaphor among many. I mean, there's lots of metaphors used about God in the Bible. You know, uh, Jesus, for example, at one point says, I long to gather you together like a hen gathered her chicks, right? And there's a point to that metaphor about Jesus longing for his people. But it'd be weird if you made a whole theology out of like the hen metaphor, you know, that would be a, a strange moment. But there are a few metaphors that are rich and deep. And the Bible takes us back to over and over again to show us multiple facets of what God is like. I mean, they all have their limits in one sense, but there are some that have so much to offer. And so it is not a mistake to think that this is a big moment when Jesus, who John has been telling us is God in the flesh, shows up at a wedding. You kind of expect that something important is going to happen. You should kind of expect that he is teaching us something big here, that this moment is ripe with meaning, and, he is, and Jesus is showing us that God has called us into a covenantal bond of love and faithfulness with him that he will deliver on. And it's shown to us through the celebration and through the ceremony. Celebration and the ceremony. We'll start with the celebration. And this is really where the story takes place is actually during this celebration at this wedding. Uh, our weddings are pretty short affairs compared to really most traditional societies do they have much longer weddings in general. This is certainly true in the ancient world. Uh, a different pace of life, you know? We tend to think, well, we'll go to this wedding and, you know, we'll, depending on what time of day the wedding is at, you'll have plans before or maybe after or what, you know, <laughs> you have other things you're going to do that day. Not so in the ancient world. Most weddings went on for days. You know, for really big weddings, sometimes a week, which is, again, hard for us to kind of get our minds around, but that's how it worked. It was a major social event. This wedding, you know, there was a ceremony, but the, the, all the pomp and circumstance around it just went on and on and on and on. But remember, this is also a time where people are connecting that haven't seen each other in a long time. Uh, it, it is, it's a, such a significant communal event. It was a big, 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 big deal. And so, 
you know, not surprisingly, you serve a lot of wine. It's going on for days and days and days. Well, and the, the, you hear the master's ceremony in verse 10 make the observation. You know, the way most people do it is they serve the good wine <laughs> at the beginning of the party, you know, when everybody's sort of attentive to their palate. And as they go along, and you imagine that there are some that are overserved, you know, they tend to bring out the, you know, the less valuable wine. It makes sense. Of course, people would do it that way. But if you run out of wine at such a major event, and again, this is maybe something that's hard for us to get our heads around, that is a big deal. Because it's not just merely that you made a miscalculation, which may be true, that may be how you ended up in this situation. But to have made that kind of miscalculation would almost certainly have been read by everybody there as a lack of generosity toward them. A lack of respect for others and all that they've put into your life. So to have run out of wine would have been a deep shame. I mean, again, this is a shame, kind of more of a shame-based culture than we're used to. Uh, that would have been a big problem for this family, whoever, whoever they were. We don't really know uh, the details about it. Uh, this would have been a profound shame. It would have marked their family uh, probably for generations. So the stakes are high. Don't, it, you know, we, it, that's something you can miss really easily, I think, if we, as we read it with kind of modern Western eyes. But the stakes are really high here. And for some reason, Mary has picked up has found out, maybe she was close, uh, because she's invited and Jesus is invited. They're probably some sort of relatives uh, of theirs. It's hard to say for sure, but probably. And so Mary has found out that they are starting to run out of wine. So Mary turns to Jesus. And we will talk about their interaction in a minute. (laughs) But whatever she's expecting, she tells Jesus to do something about it. I don't know if she's expecting him to do a miracle because we have no indication that Jesus has done any miracles up until this point. Maybe she's expecting him to kind of run around town <laughs> and find all the spare wine that he can gather up. Maybe, maybe even, you know, he's got some disciples already. Maybe send some people out to some na- you know, neighboring towns and try to gather whatever we can gather to make sure they don't run out. But Jesus has another plan. Instead, he's going, to tell, he's going to do a miracle to produce about 900 bottles of wine. I mean, this, the calculations are you know, hard to be exact, but <laughs> this is a lot of wine. This is like backing a small moving truck full of wine up to the party. Jesus pulls out all the stops. Uh, there is, you know, there's a weird... Uh, there's a weird misunderstanding in certain church circles. I believe that, you know, this was either just really grape juice or at least a very low alcohol content, and all that is almost certainly wrong. <laughs> this is wine as you know it, as you think of it. There's one industry that doesn't change a lot over time. It's wine. <laughs> it's, you know, vineyards, you know. Uh, no, Jesus 
is making sure the party keeps going. And we're told, we're told in verse 11 that this is a sign. The first of his signs. Now, this is an important word. This is an important word for the Gospel of John because John is going to point out on seven occasions, an important symbolic number, that Jesus does something as a sign. A sign of his kingdom, a sign of what he is accomplishing. This is the first of the signs. It's As far as we know, the first of his miracles. It is a symbolic enactment of everything he is about. And it's a party. I mean, we miss this a lot, don't we? We miss that what Jesus came to do is to bring a celebration. And I know I should probably stop and talk about alcohol, and I'm not going to. If you want to talk about that later, we can talk about that later. Jesus kept the party going. In fact, Jesus really brings the party. He kept the best to last. Jesus wants us to understand that his work is a celebration. It is a wedding feast that has no end, that goes on and on. We try to shy away from that. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are some of us that think, oh, yeah, yeah, that's the way it should be. And, of course, the kind of party we want is not the kind of party Jesus is bringing. But many of us who have been in the church, we are just deeply uncomfortable with this idea that it's supposed to be a celebration. Uh, I'm supposed to come here and feel guilty. I'm supposed to come here and walk away thinking, here's all the things I've got to go do. And I'm not saying you don't have things to feel guilty about. You probably do. And I'm not saying there aren't things you should leave and change about your life. There probably are. There definitely are. But that's not the point. Those things are about confronting what it is that Jesus has done and living it out. But what Jesus is here for is to celebrate. And Jesus is not ashamed, even of this family who did fail in their responsibility. Again, how how intentional or not, I have no idea, (laughs) but they did. And Jesus wasn't ashamed. Isn't that curious? I think so often we want the church to make us feel ashamed. I actually, I, I knew somebody a while back who was going to a Christian counselor, and this person's comment to me was, I love meeting with, I can't remember, is it him or her? I love, I'll just say him. I love meeting with him because he always calls out my stuff. Now, don't get me wrong, like, exhortation and all that is part of living a Christian life. And maybe they had a lot of stuff that they needed to deal with. Sure. 
but it also sounded a little bit like I go there to get beat up every week or every other week or however often they were meeting. Jesus is not ashamed of you. Jesus isn't asking you to shrink back into shame. Whatever you're called to deal with in your life, and again, there are things, of course, that we are called to deal with, sins we must deal with in our lives, but we are never called to operate out of shame because Jesus is not ashamed of you. He is not ashamed of the people that he has called because he came to call sinners, not the righteous. And we're reminded of this in any number of places. You can think about Hebrews 2. He is not ashamed to call them brothers, meaning you and me. He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. That's what Hebrews 12 tells us. In fact, it is our shame that draws out his desire for us. This is so important to grasp. It is because we are sinful. It is because we have done what is shameful that Jesus' desire is drawn out. It is in response to what we have done that his love is called into action for us. Jesus is not ashamed of those he has called. It doesn't mean he, of course, it doesn't mean he approves of everything you and I are doing right now. Of course not. But he is not ashamed. (laughs) Does he want something different for you? Yes. Does he want you to grow? Yes. But is he ashamed of you? Never. Never, ever ashamed of you. No wonder the whole description of his work is that is a celebration. The sign is of a celebration. That's what we're supposed to be as the church. A community of celebration. The culture of our church ought to be a culture of celebration. Now that celebration is about what has already happened and what has not yet been fully realized. I'm not we do live in that tension. Let's not miss that. But it is still supposed to be a culture of celebration. Now, that does mean for the time being, that celebration will always have a flip side to it. To really celebrate what Jesus has done is to also recognize what is left to be undone. So, a real culture of celebration also in a church has a culture of lament and repentance as well but lament and repentance are not the product of shame. They are the product of our confidence in what Jesus has done. You understand the difference? Does that make any sense? I hope it does. There are some churches I know that talk about having a culture of celebration, and the music is always aggressively optimistic and hopeful, and yet it is never accompanied with the ability to lament or repent. And that is a kind of, you might say, overrealized. The theological term is overrealized eschatology, which is a big mouthful to say. It's pretending that there's nothing left to be done, that there's not a bigger party ahead. <laughs> and there is. 
right? Real celebration now in between Jesus' resurrection and his return always has that flip side of lament and, re- and repentance. And look, I mean, I, I would say the last, well, over a year and a half now that we've been in this pandemic, right, that lament note has been strong, as it should be. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be a culture of celebration. In fact, as we lament, we lament with confidence, not with fear. As we deal with what we need to repent of, we we deal with it in confidence in what Jesus has done, not in shame. That's what it looks like to be healthy. And again, there are some churches who do sort of the opposite. There is a lot of lament and repentance and little excitement about what Jesus has actually accomplished. It is just all work now, all uphill. In principle, they may recognize that Jesus has accomplished their redemption, but in practice is far from it. I'm not saying we can't fall into that trap. (laughs) So I'm not saying we are better than those other churches, but man, this is what we are called to be, is a place that celebrates the work of Jesus. But But we will say this, because we are waiting for the fullness of it, it is like kind of having a bunch of engagement parties along the way, right? Waiting for the actual wedding day. And that's great. And those parties are fun. But we still know there's something better coming. And we can continue to celebrate with confidence that it is coming. And it is coming. I mean, this is what Jesus is telling us. This is what all of Scripture is telling us. It is coming. There is a day when the wedding supper of the Lamb will arrive. And it will have no end. That is one of the big differences, by the way, between our marriages (laughs) and the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's one of these things I do in premarital counseling that I talk about, you know, we put all this emphasis on the wedding, but, you know, what we're going to talk about is the (laughs) the marriage you've actually got to live afterward. Well, of course, our marriages are still marked by our weaknesses, but it will not be so on the other side. At the marriage supper of the Lamb, when our sin is finally and fully, completely done away with. When the effects of sin, of death and suffering are undone, it will be a celebration with no end. A celebration with the Lord. I think sometimes that sounds boring. I've said this I know before in sermons, and it's worth saying again. We imagine sometimes that to be with the Lord is going to be kind of a little bit dry, you know? He's real serious. But, you know, he made the walrus. You know, he, he made kittens. He made the Rocky Mountains. He made the inlets of the low country. 
That hardly seems very boring, doesn't it? I mean, can you imagine? I know I actually can't, right? Like there's actually, there's a, there is a limit <laughs> to what I can really imagine. But when I think of all of the beautiful things that he has made, it's hard to think, boy, he, that would, that's going to be boring. But we can do even better than that. Because when we think of the love that he has for us, when we think of what it costs Jesus to accomplish this, I mean, can you imagine? Can you start to imagine the depth of his love for you, the depth of his care for you, to know you in your shame so deeply, and instead of being repelled, He came for you. That's the character of God. That out of his love, he was not repelled by sinners, but drawn to them. Not, of course, because of what they're doing, but because of his love. And that he would not leave us in it, but draw us out of it. I mean, how could that possibly be boring? (laughs) That's the person you've always wanted to really be with. (laughs) Right? I mean, if you're single and you're thinking about who you want to be married to, those are the things you should want. If you're married and you're thinking about your spouse, this is a dangerous topic. This is what you really want them to be. You know, and at their best, (laughs) the they do show a little bit of that, right? No, this is the character of the kind of person you would want to be with forever. No wonder it's a celebration. No wonder it has no end. For there is no bottom to God's grace. There is no limit to his love. There is no end to his power to save. Of course, it lasts forever. Of course, And not only is it a celebration, this passage unpacks for us a little bit, very briefly, of the ceremony that it takes to bring that celebration. And here we get into that conversation with Mary. Now, this is kind of, this, the way this unfolds just over the courses of verses three through five is a masterclass in unspoken communication. Mary turns to Jesus and says they have no wine. There is a clear implication in that statement of fact that you should do something about it. Right? (laughs) That's clear. Jesus turns to her and says, woman, okay, there's a lot of ink spilled on that way of talking to your mother I don't recommend you talking to your mother that way. In modern English, that sounds very disrespectful, of course, right? You should never, you know, if you said that to anybody, that would be considered disrespectful. This, however, is a public formal setting, right? And in the Greco-Roman world, and even in the Jewish world of its time, to be in that kind of setting, you were to speak 
formally and respectfully. And so, while there are debates about this, I think that's what's going on, is that Jesus is, is speaking to her in a formal and respectful way. Nonetheless, he is still pushing back on what she just said. Right? He's saying, it's not my hour. His hour. I don't know what Mary thought he was talking about. She doesn't even really acknowledge that he just said that. But I can tell you what Jesus is thinking about. Because consistently throughout the Gospel of John, and we will see this as we go, when Jesus refers to his hour, he is talking about his death that is to come. When he will complete what is needed for redemption. That's what Jesus is thinking about. Mary is telling him about this. They're at a wedding. And what is Jesus' mind on? But his marriage to his church and what it will cost him. Again, Mary doesn't seem to know this and doesn't even respond to it. She simply turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. And Jesus follows through. You know, it, it is not that Jesus, I think, is begrudging here. But he is stating clearly where his own mind is at. And so the way he follows through on what his mother tells him to do is in keeping with it. It is a sign of his kingdom that is to come. It is a sign of the kingdom that he is bringing with himself. And, of course, his mind is on how that will be accomplished. And so we're told again in verse 11 that through this sign, he reveals his glory. He reveals what the goal of all of this is, is that celebration. But don't miss that the way Jesus is thinking about it is in terms of what it will cost him. He is thinking about it in terms of his hour, of his death. So that we learn here from the very beginning, Jesus is thinking about his ministry in terms of the end of it. This is important to understand. Because we will misread Jesus if we don't understand that from the very beginning, he is thinking about his death. It's not a morbid fascination with his death, but it is the constant knowledge of what it will take to redeem his people. That's important because you will not understand what Jesus is teaching you if you don't know that he's thinking about that. I mean, think about all of the good moral teaching of Jesus. And there are plenty of people who like to think of Jesus as a good moral teacher. But what does Jesus do over and over again with the law? Does he find a way to teach us how to make it manageable? Are Jesus' sermons uh, practical in that sense? Here's the 12 steps for you to make sure this happens, this works out. No! It's like, you know, take the Sermon on the Mount. Multiple times he says, you've heard it said, and he mentions one particular law from the Old Testament. And what does he do with it? Does he say, well, here's how you should work it out? No, he says, but I tell you. So you've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I tell you, if you've thought an angry thought towards somebody, 
you've committed murder. I mean, Jesus keeps raising the bar of what perfection would look like. And so many of the things he tells us to do seem so unmanageable, right? If someone slaps you on one side of the face, you turn the other cheek. Aren't you just going to get run over? You see, the culmination of everything Jesus teaches is the life that he lives and the end that it leads to. Because to love others the way Jesus loved perfectly will lead to a sacrificial life. Jesus knows that to love sinners will cost him his life. It is inevitable that it will cost him his life. It is the only payment we could po- he could possibly make that would actually undo our sin. And it is the only way that a sinful world will respond to the love of God is to put it to death, is to try to escape the unrelenting grace You see, his death is his focus. His death is, you might say, the mirror opposite of what we're promised, of what the kingdom will be. Because to deal with our shame and to bring us in so that we need not shame, he was put to shame. The shame of the cross which is an unspeakable, unspeakable shame. It, was for the, it literally was for the Romans. They hardly ever use the word crucifixion in any of their writing. And even when it is mentioned, they will sort of euphemistically mention it as the extreme torture or the, you know, the, something like that, so that they don't have to deal with the ugliness of it. But make no mistake, the ugliness of it was the point. It was a public display to make you less than human for what you had done. No, no, no. Jesus would take on our shame, would become the shame for our sins so that we need not be ashamed before him. Jesus' delight was in accomplishing our redemption, even though it cost him his life. Think about that. Jesus knew, I already quoted earlier Hebrews 12, right, that for the joy set before him, the joy is this celebration. It is the wedding supper of the Lamb. That's the joy of Jesus that lay ahead. He endured the cross, for the joy of it. Again, as I I get to do weddings, I'm usually standing right next to the groom at the beginning of the wedding. And uh, and I get to do something that most people don't do because when you're at the wedding, you stand up and you turn, look down the aisle, right, at the bride as she's coming down. 
You know, and I usually get to kind of glance over at the groom. And it's great. You know, because they're usually taken aback. And, you know, to be frank, it's not usually because of how the bride looks, though they're usually at their best, you know. It's because they're so excited, right, to enter into marriage with this person. And that's just a pretty fleeting glimpse of Jesus' joy at bringing us into marriage with him. That's just a fleeting glimpse of it. Right? It is for that joy that he endured the cross. So make no mistake, as we think about being a church that celebrates, as you try to think, what does it look like in my life to celebrate the work of Jesus? You have to know that his love has no end. And it really is one of the profound and innate spiritual intuitions that we have that is so wrong that we are constantly asking ourselves, but does God love me? Does God love me? I mean, maybe you're here and you're thinking about that because you've never really believed that he loved you. That is to say, maybe you've never believed this gospel before. And you might be thinking, does God love me? Well, the proof that God loves you is in what Jesus endured. The proof that God loves you is at the cross. The proof that God's love is powerful is at the resurrection. That even enduring the shame and the horror of the cross, his love never failed. But listen, maybe you've been a Christian for a while. And you still find yourself asking, but does God really love me? I mean, I keep screwing up. I messed up. Maybe, I, maybe you've been harmed in some ways. Maybe you have done harm to others that you simply cannot come to terms with. Well, look to the cross. God was not ashamed of you then. Jesus was not ashamed of you knowing everything that would lie ahead in your life, in mine, and he loved to the end. He is not ashamed. Jesus' love is never ashamed of those that he has purchased. He cannot be. He has endured shame for you. So does God love you? Yes. The wedding lies ahead, and even now we get to celebrate in preparation for it. God has provided everything that is needed. He has backed the trailer of wine up to the door. The search is over. There is no place else to go. The once-in-a-lifetime party has already begun, <laughs> and it will not end. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for the love of Jesus. We thank you that it knows no limits. We thank you that we need not have shame when we come before you because the love of Jesus has provided everything that we needed, that he was put to shame for us so that we could enjoy you forever. Lord, we do pray that we would be a church that celebrates the good news of Jesus, that we would be a church that has a real culture of celebration, not blind to the realities that still exist, but knowing that they will not win in the end. And that the groom is coming and all things will be made new. Give us confidence in Jesus. Teach us to find that confidence in the cross so that we may not fear that you would ever drive us away. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.